Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Shades of Yellow. I'm your host, Summer. If this is your first time tuning in, Shades of Yellow is a podcast series that shares stories of overseas Chinese who confidently embrace their cultural identity, fearlessly bridge cultural gaps, and passionately support the overseas Chinese communities around the world. As I record this, I thought I'll share an exchange I had with Michelle this morning. She was our guest on the last episode of Shades of Yellow. She shared with me this article of a contemporary dancer who was trained in traditional Chinese dance. In that article, this dancer, who is now a principal dancer at a very established American dance company, shares a story that we hear also often. It goes something like this: a Chinese person abandoning traditional Chinese, filling the blank because of its conservatism, rigidity, to embrace the modern, contemporary American, fill in the blank, because of its freedom and progressiveness. You know, this is the kind of narrative that we see so often on Western media. And this is precisely why I appreciate Michelle and Amelia, who's our guest today, so, so much. They were both born and raised in Western societies where such narratives are ubiquitous. It would have been easier for them to simply fit in, choose, say, Western dance or Western calligraphy. But they chose to embrace traditional Chinese dance and Chinese calligraphy. See, what I saw in them and what I appreciate about them is not so much about blindly preserving traditions, because they're not. What is important is how they chose to define and interpret traditional Chinese art in their own way. And that can be incredibly creative, new, and refreshing, while being respectful to the values and the spirit of Chinese arts and culture. So in today's episode, I speak with Amelia Tran, an Australian-born Chinese with a Vietnamese last name. Amelia is super passionate about sharing her modern interpretation of Chinese calligraphy with the world through her work at Trendleography. In our conversation, we dive into how the discovery of her father's refugee diary introduced her to Chinese calligraphy and how calligraphy has helped her rekindle her relationship with her family and brought her closer to her parents. I hope you enjoy this episode. I'm really happy to have Amelia with us today. So when I first came across Amelia on Instagram, I first just very intrigued by how someone who was born in Australia, grew up in Australia, clearly without a very strong language environment, could write such beautiful Chinese characters. So that was my initial impression of Amelia. And then I think it was maybe a couple of months ago when you released the introductory video to your Calligraphy Unlocked workshop. 
that I saw your story about how you were introduced to calligraphy and that just got me even more intrigued. So I felt like it's only fitting to have Amelia come on to the Shades of Yellow herself and share with us her story. So I'm super excited for today's conversation and thank you so much for coming on. No, thanks for having me, Summer. I never would have thought I would be on a podcast. It's actually um, on my list of things to achieve for not just for this year, but on my calligraphy journey. So hello, I'm Amelia and I'm from Sydney, Australia. I'm 26, I'm married, and I've been doing Chinese calligraphy for about three to four years. Uh, it didn't really become a business until late last year. So wow. I'm really keen to be a part of this series. And I think it's really exciting and amazing. And just the title Shades of Yellow makes me really proud to be Chinese because I may, may not look like one, but <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just a different shade of yellow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we'll definitely dive into that. But you mentioned you started doing calligraphy about four years ago. So did you always know how to write uh, Chinese characters or you really picked up uh, writing about four years ago? So like millions of other Chinese kids around the world, I was scammed by my dad. He asked me if I wanted to get a Happy Meal. So <laughs> I happily went with my dad and he dropped me off at a public school and I had to line up to get enrolled for next term's Chinese school. So like Chinese characters weren't something that was so alien to me. I mean, I grew up seeing my dad read newspapers and I grew up watching TVB Hong Kong series as well. And back then they used to have like this really ugly, bold, yellow subtitle. So I learned to write from the age of eight. And when I went to Chinese school, I learned traditional Chinese because 90% of the Chinese teachers at the school were from Taiwan. And I know that now um, a lot of the students learn simplified Chinese because I think it's a lot easier to pick up this less strokes. So yeah, I have seen Chinese characters all my life. And then it wasn't until like when I found my dad's refugee diary that I started to appreciate not only the fact that I can read and write and understand the atrocities of war that my dad and his five brothers had to go through, but to deepen that appreciation for my Chinese heritage, you know? So that was the moment that connected all the dots for me. And then just looking from that moment, looking at the, the fine penmanship of my dad, because back then he was on the island. There was no liquid paper, no nothing. So to me, I was really amazed that he could just go through all the hardships, but still able to write, you know, um, so beautifully. Yeah, that's such a beautiful story. I mean, like you said, there's no liquid paper. So you just got to keep writing and to get every word neatly and right. I mean, these days I can hardly write a sentence, you know, haven't really been writing Chinese a lot. And especially now we're so dependent on the computer. We're typing a lot. It's hard to, to recall sometimes the right character, but tell us actually a little bit about your family, because another thing that I noticed was your last name, because your last name <laughs> is a Vietnamese last name. So tell us about where your parents were from and their journey and then how that led to you being born in Australia. Yeah, so um, my parents were Vietnamese boat people. They fled from the Vietnam War uh, in the late 70s. So 
I'll start with my dad. My dad is a child of eight children. He had five brothers and two sisters. And so when the communists took over, they had to leave the country. Mm -hmm. uh, at that time, my grandpa was really worried because all six of his sons had to go because my grandpa was really hesitant. He was going to ask my, my youngest uncle to stay back in case anything happens at sea. He, mm -hmm. um, so that, you know, there's someone to carry the family name, but he went ahead anyway. So my dad actually spent 18 months just being on the boat and they actually got sent to uh, Sarawak, which is an island in Kuching, Malaysia. And they spent a good year and a half just drifting. And um, so, yeah, it was during that time when he started to jot things down in his uh, refugee diary. And it's, it's a very simple diary, just wrapped in age A4 paper. So then he spent 18 months in Malaysia and then Red Cross actually sent them to Australia. I asked my uncle over the weekend, did you know what or where Australia was? They said, no. He said, we knew London was too cold, too cold. <laughs> Don't want to go there but it was very interesting because as i read through my dad's uh, refugee diary there were pages and pages of french because my dad and his brothers were so determined to go to france but of course they had no say where or when they're gonna get sent away so that was very interesting and then a change of events they went to australia instead some of my dad's friends went to canada and america But yeah, he came here and then he met my mum at a, I think it was like a house party or something like that. That's one version of the story. Another version I've heard, I don't know why there's like multiple versions. Um, uh, there was one where, because my dad's brother knew a family who were already here. So they used to send like food to my mum's family. One day something happened. It was not the usual guy who came to deliver the food. It was my dad. And my mum was at the door. So that's how they met. But they're about eight years apart. So they started dating when my mum was 16 and he wow. was 24. So at the time, my grandparents weren't pleased because A, you're underage. And B, he looks like a pedophile. So oh. the rest was history. So that's how my parents um, met. And then, you know, they had three kids here. My sister is in her 30s. I'm in the middle and I have a younger brother and uh, we're both born and raised here. But um, I think growing up for me, really, um, it was just a big question mark because as you know, like I, I don't have the features of what people see as a Chinese person. Yeah. I'm wondering if part of the reason why you felt that you didn't look like other typical, I guess, Chinese is that because of uh, other people's reaction or their comments, or was it you, sort of just observing, looking around the, the small Chinese community and feeling that you don't look like them? I think it's a mix of everything, but everything just became concrete when I went to Hong Kong for the first time because mm. everyone there just looks, um, everyone there just looked Chinese. And then I, I knew straight away I stood out because no one's tan like me. No one has hair like me. To top it off, people were... Uh, would comment on, oh, wow, like her Chinese is pretty good. Um, she, she doesn't look like a local. <laughs> and it was just a strange experience because I felt ostracized for the first time when I, that, yeah, and 
I realized that, oh, there is something different about me physically. Yeah. And then it's just threw me into like a cycle of like, I, maybe I'm just born in like into like the wrong body because mm. yeah. And it was just like um, a string of negative experiences as well. And like my family would throw jokes around like, yeah, like mom swapped babies, you know, at the hospital or something like that. Or like, yeah, just really mean comments. You know, I was quite chubby as well. So I was chubby, tanned. It, it was just um, quite horrible, you know, um, and then it was just, I just kind of um, accept the fact that um, I'm different, you know. Yeah, I think I shared this with you when, when we chatted last time. So my cousin, who I grew up with when I was still back in China, um, she's, she's now living in uh, California. And I said to you, I, th- I thought you reminded me of her because she also <laughs> has like slightly darker skin, big eyes. And growing up, we always say that, oh, she's so beautiful. Like she looks so different, you know, in a, in a very positive way that, you know, she has such like beautiful features. She doesn't look like an average Chinese, like at least around where I grew up. So it was a positive thing. And I thought it was just so interesting that your experience was a bit of a reverse of what she had experienced growing up because she looked different. So I wonder if it has to do with the fact that being a minority, ethnic minority, in a way you somehow, people expect you to be the same or to be that stereotypical Chinese person. And when you're not, you know, it's not a positive thing because being ethnic minority is already an odd and uh, something that's not normalized. And then to be different than the rest of the minority made you stand out even more, but not in a positive way. And I'm wondering if that might be the dynamic or might explain part of the reason why you experienced what you experienced. I think it was just a lot of the things that were fed to me as I was growing up in terms of like, oh, Amelia just looks very different from, you know, say, or her older sister and her younger brother. Uh, Or like my mom actually never mind like all these comments because she knew that you know, she, she always reassured me no no you're my real you're my actual daughter you know you weren't adopted but one time it just really offended my mom because this lady just kept like just pressing you know all these questions on her like are you sure she's not adopted it was just between the two of them and then she came to me saying oh you know what like um i'm actually really upset because people just this lady just keeps like pressing all these questions are you sure she's your legitimate daughter and whatnot and to other people it's quite um, unbelievable but to me it was comforting because after what, 20 plus years of um, living, my mom, find, I felt like my, it was the first time my mom actually understood how I felt all these years. And, um, but it was weird because my dad never like questioned that or made fun of me because he was actually very proud that I talk on some of his features. Like he, my dad is tan, tall, and he would tell me stories where like my grandma was shocked when she gave birth to him because he looked very different. So that was quite comforting for me. And my dad has always, he never told me otherwise, you know, he sent me to Chinese school for God's sake. Like, but then growing up, I felt like I need to prescribe to these expectations as an Australian born Chinese, because Mm. my parents saw the importance of preserving the language and the culture. You know, um, even though you're, um, you're born overseas, 
remember that you're Arista Chinese, you need to know all these like these festivals that we celebrate, all these traditions that we remember and that we teach you about, you know. So um, looking back, I actually appreciated being enrolled in Saturday Chinese school. I mean, there were only three hours, but it was funny because there were moments when I felt like I really stood out. I was a big chunky girl. I was eight and I had to start in kindy. So I was with five, six year olds. I was, ah. yeah. So it was a weird experience. Like I couldn't fit in the chairs because it was too tiny. And then when I had to like recite poems, you know, when you have to recite poems, I really stood out, you know, um, not, the, not only the fact that kids knew, oh, she looks a bit different. Her Chinese is okay. And I remember when I took home like a, a trophy and I actually came first in my first exam. So that really affirmed of, um, who I was, you know, at, at eight, nine years old, I was oh, this is pretty cool. Maybe this is what I'm good at, you know, like I, I never knew what I was really good at. I'm not, I'm a fail Asian. Like I don't know my math. I don't really know my science, but I knew that I was taught to do something in linguistics or, um, you know, dive a little bit into the Chinese culture. So yeah, definitely, I, I felt like um, your environment plays such an important role in your upbringing and the values that you uphold. For me, as an adult, I feel like it, it's really important to develop that appreciation for your roots because at the end, of the, you, you can't change that. You can change your like sexual orientation or like your preferences in life, but you can't change that. It's, it's in you. Mm -hmm. So your mother, she also came from Vietnam. Um, uh, yeah. So my mom, um, she fled Vietnam and then she actually got snuck into mainland China. She never really like went into detail about that because compared to my dad, my dad's very open about his experiences. I think uh, a big reason behind that is because he kind of already developed the habit of writing things down, mm. anything, anything in everything in between, like the good and the bad. And mm -hmm. now that we know that a lot of people um, know that it's important to write things down to get things off your chest, that kind of like helped my dad overcome the hardships and the struggles, the sweet and the sour. But my mum, she's a bit more reserved. Whenever I ask her about things, she won't go into detail. So that's partly the reason why I don't really know what happened, you know, um, when that, that time between fleeing Vietnam and going to mainland China and then to Hong Kong and to Australia. So I can only summarize it like that. So mm -hmm. it's a shame that I don't really know, mum, like what really happened, tell me. You know, maybe she was traumatized or something like that, but it's unfortunate. But I hopefully she'll open up a bit more. So you said that, you know, even though you inherit a, a uh, Vietnamese name, which I think we should talk about that, mm -hmm. uh, you said that you identify more with uh, the Chinese culture. So were both of your parents Vietnamese Chinese or what were their heritage? Yeah, so both my parents are Vietnamese-born Chinese. So their grandparents came from China and settled in Vietnam because the borders were so close. Yeah. Uh, so I inherited the surname Tran. When you hear Tran, you know it's a Vietnamese surname. And I seriously didn't know I was only one of millions of other cases around the world where 
we have the Vietnamese surname, but we don't know how to speak the language besides ordering food in Vietnamese. That's um, something that I'm used to telling people, no, you, you must be Vietnamese. You have a, a Vietnamese surname. And no, that's the only Vietnamese thing that I inherited, but I don't speak the language at all. I kind of wish that I was taught how to speak it because I'll be multilingual and whatnot. And then again, like finding out all, reading all these stories about like other people, you know, like especially when I joined Subtle Asian Traits on Facebook, I'm like, well, oh, this is amazing. Like um, people post, uh, posting about like their struggles, like, you're, you know, that moment when you you're trying to tell people that you're Chinese, but then you have a Vietnamese surname. So it's really comforting and fascinating to see that it's a global phenomenon to, to see that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because that was actually something that came up as I was doing my little research on mm -hmm. Chinese diasporas and the Chinese immigration history. And Southeast Asia mm -hmm. has the largest Chinese population. So for instance, in Thailand, there's a huge Chinese population because of, you know, they've been there for centuries, right? Because I think the first wave of Chinese immigration started as early as the 1300. So it's really generation after generations and people have adopted the local culture, you know, customs. They've taken on a local last name. And I think that happens in Indonesia too. A lot of Indonesian Chinese have a uh, Indonesian last name as part of just assimilation for various reasons. Yeah. And, and I think that's a similar story with a lot of the Vietnamese Chinese population. I wonder what is the size of population in Vietnam of, you know, within the Chinese Vietnamese community that still identify as Chinese or do they mostly just identify as being Vietnamese? So the, your parents, do they speak Vietnamese, right? Fluently. Yeah. yeah. Fluently. Okay. Okay. Um, but they, in the family, they, they sort of, they've been speaking Mandarin or Cantonese. Was it Cantonese yeah. that you speak at home? Yeah. So uh, we grew up speaking in Cantonese, you know, you, you only hear Vietnamese when we go out and eat. But my parents are very smart about that because they knew, okay, if we're teaching Vietnamese, then we can't, we can't gossip about our kids, you know. So, <laughs> so that's, that's very, um, that's very strategic. And I, I think, I think it's very fascinating because I identify myself as more Chinese now that I um, think about it but when I was like younger I, I didn't know I thought I was half Vietnamese and then someone actually corrected me no you're not half Vietnamese you're Australian born Chinese and I was I, I just felt like I was a club sandwich you know you got you got your Australian culture you got your Vietnamese culture and you got your Chinese culture and yeah no one really pointed out to me until like I went to uni when I went to uni I did a degree in interpreting and translation and uh, I majored in Mandarin, but I was only one of the two Australian born Chinese that was enrolled into that course. The rest were international students. So the competition was intense, but then um, it was quite amusing because we had to sort of like, you know, help one another because obviously they need more help with their English and then I need more help with my Chinese. So it was, it was quite an experience, you know, I learned a lot of things, not only about um, Chinese grammar and whatnot. You know, I didn't even know that there's a, there's a word for full stop in Mandarin. I, I had no idea. That's something that I learned, you know. I always heard like, ko hao. I'm like, what the hell is ko hao? It's like, oh, it's bracket. Oh, okay, bracket. Ko hao. 
So very, very, um, very unforgettable experience. And, you know, without that course, I wouldn't be where I am, you know, um, with the birth of like um, tranliography in my Chinese calligraphy journey. Mandarin and I have an on and off relationship. Like, you're good for me, but do I really like you? Maybe not. And then we kind of like rekindled our relationship, you know, back in uh, uni. I was like, oh, okay, Mandarin. And this was another like cultural shock for me. I didn't know there was simplified Chinese. Until all my life, I grew up uh, knowing that there's only one Chinese writing system, which isn't true, you know. And then I couldn't even read the Chinese characters because they were simplified. I'm like, where's the extra stroke? It's so like abbreviated. I'm like, oh, okay. So I struggled a little bit, but then with the help of like, you know, all these apps on your phone, that helped me out a lot. It was never like unfamiliar to me. I mean, my Mandarin was like, okay, so-so. Um, but yeah, I had to speak the language, which was a major challenge for me because they spoke so fast in class and it's interpreting. We had to do um, conference interpreting. So like, you know, like the UN that you see on TV. Yeah. So it was just like, oh, do I want to, do I really want to continue with this degree? Because I am struggling. Just got really hard and um, I kind of just convinced myself, yeah, just do something else. You know, like it's, it's not worth my time. Do I really want to put myself through that? cycle again where like I hate being Chinese I love being Chinese actually it's pretty cool that I'm the only sibling in my family where I can read write and speak and understand so um it was just like a roller coaster of emotions like I would break down and I would cry to my parents you know it's really hard and um it wasn't until I met this mature um, a student in my class. In my first semester, I remember I walked out of the tutorial and I was walking to my car and we got to talking. It's like an, a, an old Chinese man who's been here for like 20 plus years. And he goes, oh, so you're studying um, interpreting. Uh, yeah, I'm studying interpreting. Oh, you were born here. Oh yeah, oh, I was born here. And he goes, why don't you just pick something easier? <laughs> I, go, I go, what do you mean? Because, oh, you know, like primary teaching where you don't have to like use Chinese. And um, I think it was the first time in a very long time where I got really riled up. You know, I, I, was, I was very offended. Like I went to this course knowing that I'm going to smash it. My parents are going to be extra proud of me. You know, I'm doing something that none of my siblings are doing. And... From that day onwards, I just kept on with my course and I'm glad I did because I eventually graduated. Not with flying colours, but like, you know, I made it. I finished it. That's, that's the main point. And my parents didn't care. They were just very, very happy. But you, you can't see, you know, like um, I remember at my graduation ceremony, I got out. Other parents are hugging the kids, you know, oh, you know, I'm proud of you, you know, Bradley or whatever. I came out, I go to my dad. I go, hey, dad, here's my degree. And I only received a... Oh, <laughs> uh, let's eat. But I knew deep down they were they were happy, you know. Yeah. And that that was just um an amazing experience, you know. Like after going through all that and having that very unnecessary encounter with a student who actually didn't want didn't want me to continue the course. So 
I'm glad I uh, proved him wrong. Yeah, because one of the things that I'm wondering is if there is a, a different approach that someone who's like yourself, who is clearly very fluent or a native English speaker, but also has very strong Chinese foundation. Like, what, do you think people that like interpreters that have this type of profile will provide different values than someone who is a native Chinese speaker and a, English as a second language? I ask that because sometimes I feel that I feel like I have an advantage in translating Chinese to English because I know the words to use that English speakers can understand because I know the culture. Whereas I feel like sometimes for someone who's really like a native Chinese speaker. But learned English later on, who may not have lived in Western countries or English-speaking countries, while they may be really good in their language proficiency, they may not be able to translate it with the words or the phrases or how things are spoken in the Western culture. So, do you feel that、um, comparing、yeah. yourself and the other Australian-born Chinese with the rest of the international students? One hundred percent, I agree. You know,、um, and I'm really glad that you brought that up because this is what people think. You know,、um, when I told my parents that I wanted to study interpreting and translation, they were like shocked. They're like, "Oh, you need a degree to interpret?" And I said, "Yes, just because you can speak more than one language does not mean you know how to interpret. When you interpret in person, you do it from first person. In movies, you see something." People saying like, "Oh, she said, or he said." You have to say it from the first person. So that's something that I learned, and that's very important in law interpreting, because when you're giving,、um, what do you call it? When you're giving like a witness statement in court, you have to do it in first person, and you have to mimic their tone. If they're hesitating, you have to interpret that too. So it is almost like an art. You have、mm-hmm. to、um, perfect. And I absolutely agree with、um, what you just mentioned. How for international Chinese students, when they have to interpret from Chinese into English, it can be a bit awkward because not everything can be translated. When I say that, I mean there could be phrases where you can't、um, find an exact translation for. You have to find the equivalent. Yes. Have to find the equivalent phrases. For example, there was a, a dialogue in interpreting. Activity that、uh, we had to do. So I'm trying not to laugh because、um, it was between a GP who's obviously Australian and there is a patient. We're doing this activity, and、um, there was a part where the doctor said, "Oh, you know, like you have high blood pressure." And then we went on、uh, interpreting, and then there was a bit where the patient had to say,、uh, "They said it in Mandarin." And they said, "Ah, 医生我没事，你看我这么啊健壮。” And then the the student, right, the international student had to translate that. And and the student said, "Oh, doctor, I can't be sick. My body is so good. I can't help. I held it to myself, trying not to laugh because the student is obviously very nervous because the whole class is listening. Yeah. And um, I don't. I think the teacher was trying not to laugh as well. And then、um, instead of correcting the student, the teacher stopped and he goes, "Okay, what is a better way to、um, interpret that?" And no one said anything. I don't know if it's a cultural thing or not, but then like I realized that when I'm in the class with international students, when the teacher asks asks something, they don't speak.、Mm-hmm. They stay quiet. And I'm like, 
oh, if you're in an Australian classroom, people will be like talking, but they don't speak. Anyway, and no one said anything. I was trying not to laugh. And uh, cause I kept replaying that line. Oh, look, my doctor, my body's so good. He goes, okay, I think a better translation would be, but doctor, look at me, I'm so fit. Mm-hmm. But that would have been like a, a much better like rendition of right? So um, for sure. I mean, like the same for me as well. I've, I've ran into situations where I, I'm just stuck. Like, how do I translate this from English into Chinese? In English, mm. it makes perfect sense to me. But when I have to interpret into into Chinese, I'm just my jaw drops, and it's awkward because everyone's listening. Everyone's trying to like take notes down, you know, like, and um, the teacher does it randomly. So that's the scariest bit. Like, it's like Russian roulette. You don't know who he's going to pick. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's like, hey, not me, not me, not me. You know, so um, I, I totally agree. But that's where teamwork is really important. You know, like, I'm not here to compete with you. I'm here to help you, you know, help yes. you. You know, if, if you need help in English, I'll help you. Because, you know, I'm a native speaker. I'm, I'm what they call a native speaker of English, which I disagree. My native tongue will always be Cantonese. Mm. but then in that context i'm a native speaker of english yeah because i was gonna say exactly like you said when you're translating from from english to chinese you have to understand the context right like what is the kind of spoken language because it's one thing to get like a dictionary sentence but it's another to use words or phrases that people actually use in their daily life and that is something that it's much harder to learn it would be easier if you've lived in that environment where you hear people use certain terms or certain way of speaking so yeah like you said it's really teamwork i think everyone has something to bring to the table yeah. and it's about just you know getting the best from both worlds yeah and um there were times where i felt like okay i like to think of it like this our classes are meant to be like a, a good mix of lolly bags you know you get your mm-hmm. you get your chocolate you get your strawberry drops or whatever lemon drops but then there were a lot of times when I felt like, because international Chinese students like to, I guess, uh, hang around each other. They don't really mingle with other uh, people who aren't Chinese. They like mm-hmm. to stick together. Mm-hmm. And I feel like um, they're missing out because if you hang out with, you know, other people like, like myself who were born and raised in Australia, you can learn so much more from just, from just having a simple conversation. Mm-hmm. you know and I feel like um that's such a shame and same goes for people like myself who were born and raised in Australia with a Chinese background there are so many like benefits of hanging out with international students or people from other ethnicities you know because from their conversation or like um, the colloquial language that they use you learn so much more like I didn't know what bang bang da meant and they apparently that means um like oh yeah that's so awesome Oh, blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And even like talking to them on WeChat, when I talk to them on WeChat, I'm like, oh, wow, it's so fascinating. I didn't know like the Chinese language has evolved that much. Mm, yes. Language is constantly evolving. People are getting creative. They're combining like numbers and uh, Chinese characters. So it's really interesting, you know. I mean, we could like achieve so much more if we mm-hmm. collaborated. Yes. You know? Forget yes. about your accent. I mean, you can speak a language fluently with an accent and that's fine, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I could actually speak from experience on the international student side because so I was an international student when I moved from Singapore to Canada to get my undergrad. 
And I think initially it was, you know, sort of hanging out with the Chinese community is a way of finding that familiarity that is no longer there. You know, when you're, when you're in a foreign country, it's nice to, to be around people that you're familiar with, to feel the sense of comfort when you're surrounded by things that are so different, you know, when you're in a different environment. So, so that's one piece that I think it's commonly felt by other uh, Chinese international students. And then the other piece is there's a cultural difference because I study international relations where it's a lot of like classes where you have to like raise your hand, you have to speak, you have to have a perspective. And initially it was hard because I feel like everything before I say it, I have to like think through my head like 10 times, like, am I phrasing it right? Is this the right way of saying it? Am I, you know, like, is this adding to the class or is this just saying something that has no value? So there was so much going through my head that by the time I'm ready to like raise my hand and speak, like we're on to the next thing. So I see that a lot with a lot of international students. And it even happened in the workplace where, I remember, you know, working in New York City for multinational companies will be in a meeting with like, you know, colleagues from Japan or China and my boss. So she's half Spanish, half Italian, obviously like lived in Latin America and North America. So very direct and very outspoken and extroverted environment. And I remember after a meeting, she made a comment to me. She's like, oh, you know, these Asian colleagues, whenever we're in a call with them, they're just so not engaged. They never say anything because we want participation, right? Because that's a good meeting when there's participation. Yeah. yeah. And, and I remember saying to her, I said, you know, they, they may be very engaged. It's just that speaking is not a way to gauge whether they're engaged or not because of the cultural differences, because a lot of times we have to think before we speak. Yeah. Whereas, you know, I've learned in the Western society that you have to say something because if you, by not saying anything, you're not interested, you're not engaged, you have nothing to say. So I kind of also learned the culture later on in my life. And I've learned to kind of adapt and to, to, to make a point. Yeah, but that's definitely such an interesting cultural nuance. Yeah, it kind of annoyed me for a while. Like, why isn't anyone speaking? <laughs> you just obviously asked me a question, but then I realized that, oh, you know, in our culture, silence is golden. Make sure your words are mature enough and like they're the right words to say before, you know, because yeah. when the is like caught out, you can't retrieve it. So yeah. I understand that too. And actually that reminded me of a very recent example. So I was, I met this girl who is also a female founder and she was, a, so she's a Singaporean, uh, but she would grow up in China Ooh. and her boyfriend is a Chinese. So I think he was born in China. He moved to Australia at a very young age. So I was just chatting with her about something about culture. And she's like, oh yeah, that makes so much sense because I get so frustrated sometimes with my boyfriend who always feel like he has to say something and he always has to like be heard. And she's like, I think that's because, you know, when you're in an environment like that, especially I think more for Asians that are, you know, born in uh, Western societies, that if you're not speaking up, I mean, speaking up might not mean you're heard, let alone not speaking up at all. So it's funny how, you know, um, he learned that too in that environment that he had to say something because it's not saying something, it's valued even less than saying the wrong thing. It's very interesting just to see like the, the cultural um, differences, you know, and um, when I spoke with one of the international students that I befriended, and um, I go, is it, is it normal in China where you don't speak at all when the 
teacher is asking you for something because he or she is like begging for an answer and to be met with like silence. And the awkwardness of silence. Oh my gosh. And then I'm with this other girl who was also Aussie born Chinese. We're looking at each other like, oh, come on, bro. So say something. It's so obvious. Yeah, just say it. And then the teacher would just proceed going, okay, next question, move on. And it's not very engaging, you know. Mm-hmm. Like classrooms is like where the action is, you know, that's where you learn. You're spending like what, two hours with each other, like what, every week. You might as well take something out of it. But in, in that perspective, I, I, I understand, you know. It, it also doesn't mean that you, you don't care mm-hmm. as well. That's yeah. Something. Yeah, there, there are so many layers to like everything. And I feel like as I was hearing your, your upbringing and your experiences too, I think, you know, as a kid and even today, I think we always are, we, we want to fit in and we want to find a group that we can identify with. And I think the struggle is sometimes when we can't find the exact group or can't find the right place to fit in. And I think that creates a lot of internal conflict and that is felt by everybody and in so many different ways and there's so many different angles let's dive into the calligraphy because yes. i think we talked about your i guess would you say when you found your your father's refugee diary that was your first introduction to calligraphy as an art as a practice or have you you know encountered calligraphy earlier in your life i think um I, the only time that i see this my calligraphy uh, or anything written on paper would be at Chinese restaurants. Mm. You know, like when they have specials, you know, they have like uh, Mother Day special, Yum Cha specials. And um, I just, I've seen some really incredible like Chinese calligraphy and I'm like, and honestly, it's sad because people don't really care. Mm. You know, I'm like, that, that's amazing. You know, like that might have taken like hours to write those specials. People just don't really give a flying crap about it, you know. And um, so that was like one of my earliest memories of seeing written Chinese. But then, like I said, I have an on and off relationship with Chinese. You know, I love you. I hate you. Maybe you're okay. Maybe you're the one for me. Yeah, like when I uh, discovered my dad's uh, refugee diary, I was cleaning and then I go, what is this? Um, I'm thinking that, oh, maybe it's my dad's secret stash, you know, of uh, naughty stuff. <laughs> Opened it. And I was like, wow. Wow. And then I could actually read it, you know, and I'm like, oh, dad actually wrote down stuff about his uh, refugee journey. And I read through it. I mean, it's nothing fancy. It's a book. It's a blue pen. And he just wrote it. I feel like the simpler something is, the harder it is to achieve. So mm. for me, my, my, my dad was 19. And for him to not have dictionary, not have liquid paper, just him on an island, you know, trying to like fight off like uh, racism and, and whatnot, but still being able to like articulate his feelings, his, his mental thoughts, it's just, it's just beyond me. Like, I don't know how he did it, but he did it. And um, like I said, that was my dad, my dad's way of coping with the atrocities of war, you know, by writing things down. And that just explains so much to me as to why he's so open to sharing his experiences, like all the sweet, sour and the bitter, like everything. And I went, oh, 
like it made me really like proud to be a Chinese person with a Vietnamese surname because I'm I'm more than just a person like one of millions of other kids out there who has inherited a Vietnamese surname but with Chinese roots you know and um, I forgot about like myself I was just so engaged with what was going on inside the, the diary you know mm-hmm. so from there, I began dabbling. I would look at my dad's diary and then I'll have a piece of paper and I'll just try to like copy his style. This is before knowing that there's different kinds of scripts of Chinese calligraphy, you know. I, I just call it my dad's style. So I just copied everything, with the strokes. So it just went on from there. And then I go, hey, I found this. Is it yours? And he wasn't like angry or anything. He's like, oh, you found it. Yeah, about time you found it. And then he would just read to me. Obviously, like when, when I was 19 or 20, I couldn't read all the characters because they're so abbreviated. So then, no, no, what happened here? Like, so you got in a vessel and a baby was born. What happened here? Tell me more. So, um, and that's when like my dad and I like bonded even more. The family ties are strengthened, you know, and um, he, like so many like gaps that I had in my memory about my dad's journey was just filled in, you know, by having those special moments together, you know, it was just the two of us. And yeah, and then I just went on to open my own Instagram account where I just shared like uh, my, my Chinese calligraphy um, to other people. And it's just fascinating to see like how much I've progressed Mm. throughout the years post after post so what is your interpretation of calligraphy because for some people it's an art right but but i feel like for you it's a lot more there's a lot more personal it's about family i want to hear from you like what is your own interpretation of calligraphy what does calligraphy mean to you for me um calligraphy or just writing in general it's a what do you call it? It's a reflection of the things that are happening in my life because something that I've heard from my dad, I still remember to his day, I, I asked him, hey, um, your handwriting actually looks different back then to how you write now. What's going on there? Like, shouldn't it be consistent? And he goes, I was, he goes, I was 19 then and now I'm 61. He, he said to me, like, um, a person's writing flex like their life situations. And that's so true. Like how I used to write two, three months ago is completely different to how I write now because as you progress in life, you go through changes. So will your writing. And that's completely okay. You know, my, and can I also stress out that your normal handwriting, it won't affect your Chinese calligraphy or whatever calligraphy that you're into because the word calligraphy actually means to draw, to write beautifully. Mm-hmm. Right. It derived from a Greek word. Like for many other people, it, it might be just like a hobby because of like the technological changes to how we write now with all these different fonts, everything is like digitalized and not a lot of things are handmade these days. There's not a lot of Chinese calligraphy teachers that I personally know who still does this besides the, the chefs and the waiters at the Chinese restaurants, which I think is such a pity because there's so much to learn from. You know, this is, this is like hours and hours of practice, writing, repeat, and then you have like a reject pile, start again. Um, but to me, it's way more than just your, your brush, your ink, your paperweight. 
for me, it's sort of like a seal of approval for, for myself that I am who I am. I can't change how I look. This was given to me. Like, I can't change my curly hair to straight hair. Just because someone used to tell me, you should get your hair chemically straightened again because Chinese girls should have straight hair. Or like something even more ridiculous that I used to hear from a relative that I was in Tasmania, I was eating ice cream and he goes, oh, you know, like you should maybe cut down on chocolate because of the dark pigment in chocolate will make you look dark. Oh so, my God, that is so ridiculous. It's really unbelievable. But it's, I've heard all of those things, you know. Um, soy sauce is another example. Another relative goes, yeah, don't dip that in soy sauce. You're already dark enough. Was that meant to be, were they trying to be funny or? I don't know. I just, <laughs> um, as a very young child, I was taught not to talk back because they're my elder. So I just took it as it is. And like, by the time they told me like, not to like eat that much chocolate, then I just, I just can't, I couldn't stomach that. And like, I, I just, I don't remember finishing the ice cream because I was that upset. I was 14 by the way, when that happened to me. So Chinese calligraphy was just, um, I don't know. It was a big turning point for me because um, when I picked up that brush pen, I'll leave that in the past, you know, like that doesn't like define who I am. And um, there are so many people who support me in what I do. And it's something that in what a lot of people told me, like they've never seen it before in Australia. For someone who is born and raised in Australia, this is rare. And I've told you before about my encounters, like doing gigs at um, shopping centres, and people are shocked because they expect to see someone much older, someone yeah. wise, more experienced, and, and, and just fascinating. All the it just generates really interesting dialogue, you know. But it, it's cool, you know. Like, and um, most of the conversations I've had with people are much like elderly. But I'm really proud of you, you know, um, that you're you're doing something that's so um, I guess old school, you know. But part of my mission is to repackage Chinese calligraphy and make it fun. I don't know about you, but when I was younger and a lot of my friends have said it to me, they go, oh, you know, when I see like calligraphy, I only see it in temple. I see it in like these old antique shops and it's just something so out of reach, mm. you know, something so ancient that they can't access. Part of my goal is to modernize it, make it more fun and interesting. Like, no, it doesn't have to be like that rigid. Like learning can be fun. Yes. You know, you can add um, elements of lettering to your um, Chinese calligraphy, add stars if you want, add sparkles if you want. And just to revitalize that, you know, Chinese calligraphy is not something that takes years and years and years of life experiences and whatnot. You, all you need is a pen. It doesn't have to be a calligraphy brush pen. Like, uh, like a pen and you just right away. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that you're doing what you're doing. And because just like what you said about language, right? Because language evolves. It's not like the language of 5,000 years ago when we're still using the same language. We come up with new words. We come up with new interpretation. And the same goes for calligraphy. I mean, the art itself or the practice of calligraphy itself, it's already so relevant for today's, our modern lifestyle, whether it's, self-expression or whether it's mindfulness there's so much we could draw from this practice 
And why do we keep the presentation so old school? Mm. And, and that's my personal observation too. Like growing up, we never associate traditional Chinese culture as something that's relevant because of how it's presented. It's always, you know, you see it's always the older generation doing it, or it's always the same sort of design or the same sort of presentation that has been, you know, used for generations after generations. But culture and heritage evolve too, just like anything else. And I'm really glad to see you, you know, injecting your own interpretation and modernizing it your own way while still staying true to the art form or to the practice. And I, I would really hope to see more people doing that because I feel like a lot of us, especially the younger generation, still sometimes feel that traditional art, it's something that belongs to the past. Yeah. And I, I actually don't think that's the case. But then again, that, you know, we grew up being exposed to things like that. You know, we, we grew up being told that our oh, traditions are, are old. So it, it takes a lot of unlearning. And also it takes a lot of exposure to new ideas, like what you're doing and what we are aspiring to, to do so that people will have a brand new understanding yeah. to uh, traditional arts and practices and it, yeah and it's funny like i've met a lot of critics as well like when i started doing trans calligraphy my dad would always say why would you write like that you should elongate the stroke and i go because that's your style this is my style he finds it really hard to understand that you can really write in any way but it can be staggered but in proportion all that balance right so that was something hard for him to comprehend and my uncle the same case i wouldn't write like that I wouldn't write that big and um it, it's just very it's funny because like i i wouldn't talk about oh okay thank you for your your feedback you know i'll i'll have a look into it and um it's like an ongoing thing my dad will always be like the biggest critic his handwriting will always like deflate my self-esteem but like when we were talking about like chinese calligraphy i think it's worth mentioning western calligraphy because Western calligraphy, I think for a lot of people is so much more, I guess, for us anyway, uh, so much more uh, accessible and easier to understand because it's alphabet. Right? Yeah. But I think what's common in between Chinese calligraphy and Western calligraphy is that it started off as an ancient art form, you know, in, in Bibles, um, even like in hieroglyphics, you know, in the Egyptian culture. Yeah. And similarly, Western calligraphy has different fonts, different styles, same as Chinese calligraphy. We have it in regular script, um, semi-cursive and so on. So I find that really fascinating as well. But Chinese calligraphy will always have, have like a special place in my heart. And uh, they're both really respectable forms of art. And I don't, I don't think it's like, you know, this is better than that, or I prefer this over that because they're both just um, different forms of art and the worth learning because for a lot of people learning something new can be scary because that's all they've known how we do something how we write a word how we write a character that's just the way it is they don't they never questioned it like i think that's how my dad was raised as well because a is a b is b mm. you know like you got to stick to this but what they don't realize is that we have to constantly explore it's not a bad thing after all to look at other styles of calligraphy right and there's more than one way to approach something and also chinese calligraphy has also helped me bridge that cultural gap between me and my parents 
you know, obviously like living with immigrant parents has brought a lot of interesting experiences as well. So, um, but that's another story to tell. <laughs> when you initially started writing calligraphy, it was like you said, you're imitating your father's strokes. What was that journey like from the first time you picked up a pen or a brush uh, to today? How did you find your own style in calligraphy and how would you describe your calligraphy style today so uh, from the very first moment of um, picking up that pen just like I think it was like a regular ballpoint black pen my dad's style was all that I knew all that I knew like okay this is the way to write Mm. this is the only way to write because that's all I knew that was like this almost like the standard for for writing Chinese and then um, when I went to uni and I'm looking at other like students where I'm like, oh, this is actually another like way to write a character as well. So that was very interesting as well. And then how I found my style was through Western calligraphy, actually lettering. And I'm going, oh, okay. So when I was thinking, how do I repackage Chinese calligraphy and make it a bit more um, appealing to uh, younger people like myself? So I would add um, elements of lettering, like drawing flowers, drawing like like little stars, specks, uh, sparkles, stuff like that, drawing like lines and whatnot. And I'm saying, wow, okay. So if I can incorporate like these Western elements into something that's so rigid, old school, that'd be actually quite fun. And when I started writing like Chinese couplets out of those elements in and it, it was very surprising, you know, when, when other people saw it, they're like, oh, okay, that's pretty interesting. And um, you can draw like animals as well. And just adding those bits. And it's like a East meets West, right? Mm-hmm. So I started off by looking at other examples of lettering, which I think is so important to have a look at other people's works. But then it's also hard, you know, be inspired, but not, you know, copying Mm-hmm. Um, everything so I do give credit to like other people who I look up to for the, like for their beautiful um, creations so that would be my kind of approach to it unapologetic that's how I would um, describe it because uh, while there are foundations that we have to adhere to in Chinese calligraphy I, I think at the end of the day we have to be ourselves while I, I very much admire this Chinese calligrapher's style there's another way to approach writing this certain character so it will be unapologetic in the way that I approach life as well you know like if, if I don't tell you now where am I going to tell you you know, mm-hmm. like, um, you don't know what's going to happen. So the same thing with my writing. Today, I may be able to write this character that I've been working on so hard, so long. Tomorrow, I could lose my ability to write. So so I write with, with all my mind, you know, in my capacity. And like I said, you don't know what's going to happen in the next, mm-hmm. the next moment. So it's, it's mm-hmm. give it your all, you know. Like for those who want to begin practicing calligraphy that will be like my one and only advice be unapologetic be yourself Mm -hmm. okay like just because someone told you that's the only way to write a character that's not true like Mm -hmm. clearly they haven't seen other styles of chinese calligraphy yeah that's so true because it's still honoring the spirit of calligraphy which is being present and being in the moment right so essentially what you're writing is a reflection of yourself at that point in time is a self-expression 
It's about being mindful of the moment. So definitely there shouldn't just be one way. And it's also funny because usually, you know, when people say some, I mean, all of us, right, whatever we share a perspective of an art or whatever that is, there's always a, an element of our own interpretation. So when people say, oh, there's only one way of writing calligraphy, that might just be their understanding of what calligraphy is, but there is no right or wrong way. No one can say that, oh, that is how calligraphy should be because nobody knows. It's, you know, it's an art that has such a long history that everybody kind of injected their own interpretation and understanding along the way that it's only right for us to do the same for yeah. ourselves. Yeah, and can also just add that, um, I just thought of it, the fact that my dad began like a refugee, refugee diary when he was 19, he was already practicing mindfulness. That's a concept that was so like, I'm like, oh, he's so ahead of his time, you know, like he recognized that not only was it important to document these like life-changing events, but also to, you know, write things down be uh, because like that's going to help you in the future and you mm -hmm. won't live with that, those traumatic experiences, you know. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I, I've seen that because when I talk to his friend and ask them about their experiences, they just tell me to, oh, it's not worth mentioning, you know, like I'm here now, I'm good, I'm healthy, I have kids. Why bring up the past? So I'm really, really, really um, grateful for the way that my dad approaches life because mm -hmm. he, that's behind him, but like, you know, he wouldn't dwell on it. It's a good place to visit. The past is a good place to visit, but just don't dwell on it, you know. And when I asked him to like read his um, diary entries, like he, he wouldn't hesitate. He would just read it to me, you know. Even when he mentions like girlfriends, I'm like, oh, I thought my mum was the one and only, you know. And uh, that's the only bit where he sort of goes, oh, you know, um, next page, we'll read the next page. That kind of thing. <laughs> so what are your goals and what is your vision for trilography? Right now, I know you're, you know, you're juggling this and also other things, right? So what is your vision? Do you eventually want to pursue calligraphy full time? What are your hopes and dreams and vision when it comes to sharing calligraphy with more people and with the younger international audiences? So whenever I get asked about where I see trilogy or myself in five, 10, 20 years, I can honestly say that Yes, I do want to see more millennials or like Gen Z to pick up Chinese calligraphy, but more importantly, allow them to, I guess, explore their multiple identities and to just bridge those gaps between them and their family. Because for me, I knew that I struggled a lot, you know, being born and raised in a Western country as opposed to my parents who who fled from war zones and uh settled in australia because i think with the with like especially like my mom she sort of like keeps everything to herself and she doesn't really uh, talk about like her past you know like what happened to her so for me when i started trans calligraphy i wanted to sort of um strengthen my relationship with my mom because I, I didn't know a lot about her. So Chinese calligraphy has definitely like helped me like bridge that gap between my mum. You know, I had a lot of like blanks that I want to fill in. And looking back at it now, my mum would even like ask me to write things for her, write things down for her. Like, oh, how do you write this character? 
So it's good. And then like that would lead to other conversations about her when, when she like learned Chinese when she was in Vietnam. I guess the bigger message that I want to um, share is that we don't have to necessarily like sit down and have conversations with our parents, you know, to talk about things. But calligraphy is only one of the many like great ways to, I guess, repair those like estranged relationships that you may have with like your family or your friends. And for me, I guess the biggest challenge is for young people to come to terms with who, who they are, you know. Um, we live in a world that is so fragmented, you know, and there are like so many things to learn each day as well, you know, like who, who you really are and um, where, where you really see yourself in the world, you know, and how you position yourself. And I really hope that through trying legacy that people will be more open-minded to learning new things. And as I said, unlearning and learning something new can be quite frightening Mm-hmm. because that's all that they've known so I really hope that through what I do I can inspire uh, many more other young calligraphers to come out and just embrace who they are it's like it's so funny because like when I was younger I didn't want to be associated with being Chinese I hated it first I didn't look like one and secondly it's just I, I just don't I don't see myself you know like um, continuing like what my mom does you know all these these dishes that they that she cooks and like now that I have that deepened appreciation for who I am um, and where I come from and it just makes it more important for me to continue this legacy you know it's more like how my dad's legacy really and to mm-hmm. practice mindfulness every time I write. So tell us about your the workshop that you're running it's isn't it coming up in this weekend? It's tomorrow yeah. Oh my god so is this the first time that you're running or you're hosting your own workshop or you've done this in the past? Yes, that's right. I'll be running my first Chinese calligraphy workshop tomorrow. Uh, it's a three-hour workshop and it's called Chinese Calligraphy Unlocked. And um, I didn't want to go with like intro to Chinese calligraphy because I promoted it as a, an unordinary workshop. What's unordinary about it is your teacher, she doesn't look Chinese, okay? But she is very um, passionate about Chinese culture and why it's important for people to, I guess, learn about it and what's worth learning. And there is a very intimate class. We will unpack like, you know, the anatomy of a brush pen. What's, what's the tail? What's the, what's the brush? What, what are the different types of brushes that we use? Um, how to prep brush, how to clean. But more so, this is a space for them and an opportunity for them to um, learn from each other because um, a lot of them are not Chinese. So I'm really looking forward to it because uh, we get to learn something. And this experience might be the very first time that they have stepped out of the house. Taking ah. that very first step could be scary for them because um, I do have an, uh, an, an older mum in on my list. So um, I, can, I really commend them for doing that because it's not easy. People are really anxious about heading out the door these days. And yeah, and we will also go through some uh, really fun, complex Chinese characters as well, uh, ligatures. So we'll look into ligatures and that's where they can take their calligraphy to the next level and challenge themselves. It'll be a really fun day. It'll be jam-packed. I am pissing my pants because I am 
so nervous. But um, just thinking about like what my students will walk away with just makes me really, really happy, really excited about the event. So it will be, it'll be um, quite a memorable day for everyone. Yeah, it's so exciting. And I'm sure you're going to be hosting many, many more workshops in the future. And I'm hoping to host more, I guess, like um, more forums as well in the future, which is what I want to do. I want to really run a forum where it's centered on like my dad experiences. Mm -hmm. So that's a little like sneak peek of what's to come this year. Um, coronavirus has ruined a lot of birthdays, a lot of special events, but it hasn't ruined this one. So I'm very glad that we're still going ahead with the workshop. Yeah, so I, I wish you all the best for the, your first workshop. I'm sure you're going to do great. So no need to be nervous. I'm sure you're going to be amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, and definitely I'll be looking forward to all the photos and footage from the event. But before I let you go, Amelia, I, I'm just curious to hear from your perspective, because I know you've had the love-hate relationship with being Chinese. Mm -hmm. But if there's anything that you would love to see more within the Chinese community, specifically the overseas Chinese community, what would you like to see more within the community? And how do you think us as Chinese diaspora, overseas Chinese, can contribute to this fragmented, complex world that we live in today? For me, uh, especially during this very strange time, collaborations have become more important than ever. And we're able to um, achieve so many things by connecting online. And what I hope to see is that for Chinese people overseas and Chinese people who are born and raised in westernized countries is to just collaborate. So we can unlock so many things if we are willing to, you know, like begin that conversation, you know, and there's nothing to fear, you know, and we only fear because we don't know what's going to happen. And it's something that we should embrace, you know, and there's so much that we can bring to the table. Imagine all the connections that we're going to form by just saying, hello, love your work, would love to have a chat with you. Um, so that's what I want to see. And also, I will want to see, I like to bring up the examples of Chinese restaurants because um, it's really funny. It's something like, it's Chinese specials are something that we take for granted, you know. Um, but I would like to see younger people, you know, working with restaurants and collaborate. Why not, you know? Mm -hmm. Try things up a little bit, make, we bring you more business and people will appreciate this ancient art form so much more make it more appealing. That's part of like my mission to repackage Chinese calligraphy. We can make it fun. Even like we see um, other examples around the world where they combine Chinese calligraphy and graffiti. Mm. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. um, and to just, yeah, begin those conversations, you know? Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, you can just imagine like all the amazing things that you're, we're going to achieve, you know, as a community. And I uh, would like to see more younger Chinese uh, people to, I guess, get involved in their local communities, you know? I know these times are hard, you know, like with social distancing and staying clean and whatnot, but get in touch with your elders, talk to them, you know? They're your best resources. Talk about their stories, you know? Learn from them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love the idea of the Chinese restaurant specials. I can imagine you doing like a, a special workshop or event at, yeah. you know, a popular or a frequently visited 
Chinese restaurants that people might not, like you said, you know, they might be visiting this place all their life, but they have might never noticed the specials and the calligraphy that it's, you know, there all the time. And to just tell the story behind, you know, the, the process of writing it. Because one thing that I've noticed a lot about Chinese culture is there's even the, the tiniest thing, there's always meaning, thought, and love behind it. So I think by you just sharing that example of the special menu, it's another example of how it's something that we often overlooked, but there's so much to it than, than what we see or than what, what may be visible to a lot of people. I will be super excited to see you collaborating with a local restaurant in Sydney and to, to come up with uh, an experience or a workshop like that. I think that would be super cool. It's definitely something to look forward to. You know, it's such a refreshing picture just to see a younger person in the restaurant right? Yes. Chinese, you know. Yes. You are also contributing to the wider Chinese community, you know, and that very act is preserving culture. You're preserving language. You're preserving traditions, you mm -hmm. know, and um, that's something for, you know, um, older members of the Chinese community to be proud of, you know. Mm -hmm. Younger people actually care about their roots. They care. They're so proud to be Chinese. We're not just always on our phone talking to our friends and, and whatnot. We care. We care about who we are. We care about our heritage because we're all different shades of yellow. Boom. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you so much, Amelia. It was so fun chatting with you. And I just love hearing more about your story and love, love, love what you do. Um, and I think in a way, you know, we're so aligned in our vision too, because what we're doing is exactly like you said, we want to get, you know, by us sharing stories of people like you, we want to hopefully inspire more people to come forward and to share, embrace their heritage through, you know, their own way, through their own interpretation, no matter which field or which line of work that they're in, there's always so many different ways for them to, to showcase, to embrace and to connect. So thank you so much for sharing your story with us and be looking, I'll be looking forward to seeing more calligraphy workshop and experiences from trilography. And uh, yeah, definitely we'll be looking forward to some collaboration with Chinese restaurants. That would be so fun. <laughs> Yeah, maybe you can even do it in Singapore. Hopefully you can travel again and then we well, can collaborate. And do, yeah, and then we can do something together. That's actually so fun. And so we can marriage people's love for food, for Chinese food, with this like mindful, beautiful art form. That would be so amazing. Can I just say I'm slightly aroused now? Just like... <laughs> <laughs> but yes, thank you so much for having me. You know, it's been such a fun chat you know, and um, love your work as well. And I think um, it's just a stepping stone for many other Chinese people to, to follow, to pursue. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So thank you again, Amelia. Um, I'm sure we're going to be chatting again. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you for joining us in this journey to build a global Chinese diaspora community, one conversation at a time. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast, share it with your friends. And you can also follow us on Instagram at culturegen. That's where we post daily Chinese artistic and cultural content to inspire our modern living. 
We'll see you in the next episode. Take care.